Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 367 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I'm delighted to have you with us today. It's been a little while since our last episode, hasn't it? You know that in the last seven years, I've been consistently releasing episodes on Tuesdays. I haven't taken a break Every single Tuesday, we've been releasing a new episode. But you might be wondering about the delay. Well, I just returned from a magical two-week vacation in Asia where I had the opportunity to visit stunning places like Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Turkey. It was a truly transformative journey. The vibrant culture, delicious food, and warm-hearted people of every place we visited were nothing short of amazing. The best part? I took a complete digital detox. Every moment was spent unplugged, soaking in the beauty around us and creating unforgettable memories. But now I'm back, recharged and beyond excited to dive into today's episode with you all. In this episode, I'm honored to introduce you to our exceptional guest, Dr. Ricky Aronson. Dr. Aronson is an award-winning teacher and dual specialist in endocrinology and geriatric medicine. Dr. Aronson is passionate about teaching relationship management as a key to happiness. His career marked by significant role in medical leadership has been journey in learning about humility, humanity, and the pursuit of happiness. In our conversation, we'll explore the inspiration behind his book, the dynamic of relationship, and the necessity of understanding this dynamic. He's going to share with us some of his secret to have a passionate marriage. But before we diving into the episode, I wanted to remind you to download our free mini series. It's video series on stress management. I've been hearing consistently from my listeners about the negative impact of stress on their sex life. And I wanted to create something meaningful to help you to effectively manage it. So this is my gift to you. Head over to our show notes and download it. All right. Without further ado, let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Ricky Aronson. Dr. Aronson, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege. Well, I am very excited for this conversation. I know you have an interesting book called Women Are Superior to Men. And I'm very intrigued to learn more about what led you to writing this book. What were some of the topics you covered for our listeners? Thank you so much. Well, I'm actually a medical doctor. So I guess going back a long way, when I got married, all of you get, you know, your friends get married at the same age. And I was very fascinated by the fact that most of the couples I knew were having the same kinds of fights. And it was, in a way, quite um, humbling because you think you're such an original person and you talk to all your friends and the husbands are complaining about the same problems, the wives are complaining about the same problems. So I found that very interesting in of itself. Then I went off and became a medical doctor. And in my career, one thing that just happened by serendipity, I guess, is that I became more and more involved in leadership and also in teaching other doctors about people and managing teams, managing people. And the, the non-clinical side of medicine, that's so important because we, we don't manage diseases. We manage 
people with diseases. And it's that side of things. It's not just that because really when you're in a hospital, you run a team. And if you don't get the team right, people can die because of systems mistakes rather than medical mistakes. And that's a, as common a cause of death in medicine as, as doctors making mistakes. So I got more and more fascinated by managing people. And I started to run courses teaching other doctors how to manage people and to understand what makes people tick, what makes them happy. And that's really all about relationships. And there's a great science and a lot of evidence to guide how to manage relationships, particularly in the workplace. But I don't think that that evidence is isolated to the workplace because relationships and people are the same, whether they're in a family or whether they're at work, you have the same issue, which is how do two different complex people with all the emotional baggage find a way to get along and work together. So I ascended in this area and I kept getting new promotions and all sorts of things. And ultimately, I started running a course to teach other specialists how to manage people. And my wife is also a doctor said, I'm going to come to the course, not because she wanted to, but because she wanted the professional development point. So she, and she said to me before the course, I'm sure it'll be really boring and I won't learn anything, but I need, I need the professional development point. So she came to the course and there were about 50 specialists there for a half day seminar. And she left and she said, that was amazing. I learned so much and I think you should write a book. And I went, what? I I never thought of writing a book. So she said, no, you will write a book. So, I mean, I can't really argue with the supreme commander of the house. So I said, okay. And I started writing about relationships and conflict avoidance and dealing with people and all the complexities to that. And I was kind of writing in a very uncontrolled, unguided way. And then I got an editor and he said, no, you can't just write this massive encyclopedia of human relationships and uh, conflict and managing all these things. You've got to focus on something. So I thought that the easiest place to focus was men and women and relationships in marriage and dating because that's everyone, most people are interested in that. And the, the culmination of all of that was I was at work in a doctor's office late in the evening and there were a group of female nurses there and they were all on the phone to their husbands and they were getting very frustrated. And the one nurse goes, why, why do I have to call my husband every night to tell him to feed the children? I mean, doesn't he get it? They need to be fed and showered every night. And the next nurse goes, yes, why do I need to spend all my mealtime breaks on the phone giving instructions to my husband? Like he's been a father for years. So I turned to them and I said, hey, you're all just expecting too much. Women are superior to men. And they got really excited and they went, ah, that's brilliant. You should write a book about that. So it kind of focused me on writing about the kinds of problems men and women have on average in relationships. And I spent a year researching, thinking, interviewing people, talking about that. And and that culminated in the book. Well, Dr. Arnson, what an interesting story. And I'm curious about learning where did you get good at relationship and tell you why that it's because I was like looking at article and I bet you you have read this before that the number of loss in the medical field will be less if people have better relational skill like bedside manner with patients so it's such a important skill and I know many many physicians they were not taught that so how did you get good at relationships? Well, I don't, I can't claim to be good at relationships. I'll have to check with my wife. So she, she left quite grumpy this morning. So maybe I'm not that good at relationships. Look, I think that you, that, that is a big issue. And it's something I've been campaigning for in year, for years in my profession. And I don't want to run down doctors because I think being a doctor is one of the hardest jobs in the world. Because even if you do everything right, 
you go by the textbook, you're thorough, you're well-trained, you can still make mistakes. You still can't diagnose what's wrong with certain people. You can still, people can die because of things that you've done, even with the best of your efforts and your, you know, even if you're really good. So I think it's, a, it's an incredibly trying and difficult profession. And where we see problems isn't just in the way doctors talk to patients and how they manage them. It's also doctors managing the emotional price of being a doctor, which is very, very high. And so we have a lot of doctors burning out, not coping, breaking down. And that's becoming a bigger and bigger issue because the world is becoming more pressured. And to be honest, in the West, we're, we're much less resilient. So the kinds of things I did as a junior doctor, the modern junior doctors would not cope with sleeping on the floor doing 36-hour shifts and the kinds of pressures we were under. And that's just something we as a profession have to learn to manage better. So I guess one of the challenges is that being a doctor requires so much knowledge and so the major focus at medical school is equipping people with knowledge because if you don't have the knowledge to diagnose what's wrong with something, to treat it, to treat them, to understand all the pharmacology and the side effects and the, you know, what the illness can do to them, you can't be a competent doctor. But I don't believe we spend enough time teaching people in a focused, thorough way how to manage other people. But I would go a step further than that. I, I've just written a book on parenting, which won't be released probably until sometime next year. And it's the same thing that I say in all my books, which is why don't we teach people more about managing people and themselves, not in medical school, at school, at university. Why are we, I mean, we are weird species. The number one thing that's going to make a human happy, and this is evidence-based, is how well they manage relationships. That's the key to most happiness and also a large key to success. But we don't formally teach children how to manage marriage, bringing up children, being in a relationship, friendship, understanding what makes people tick. And that's all very easy science, evidence-based knowledge that can be passed on. So I, my campaign is, I think, never mind teaching that at medical school. I think that we should be teaching our children, not just relying on parents, because lots of parents are terrible. They're useless at relationships. They never learned. So how are they going to pass on the knowledge to their children? There's lots of dysfunctional parents. So my big thing in life is why don't we teach people? Because you te if you learn the knowledge, you find things so much easier. I agree with you. I think part of it is knowledge. Part of it is emotional regulation and, and communicating clearly with your partner. I have lots of respect for physician. My husband's also a physician in leadership. And we went on this very nice, it was a conference in Hawaii. So like we both have our own thing and we're very kind of like a, a psychological to differentiate it. We have our own hobby. I was walking by the pool in the morning. It was a really nice resort. And this wife of a, one of the attendees, she was yelling, so like, you brought me here. You never, you never spend time with me. Like it was a major scene by the pool. And I, I can see where she was coming from, right? Feeling disconnected. People have like high demanding jobs. And you're right that my experience as some of my husband's colleagues, because of the stress of the work, they are disconnected with emotion. If you're making like lots of tough calls, there, there needs to be more of a kind of logical mind approach versus emotional approach. And on top of that, when you are having kids, I think it's really hard to remain connected with your partner. You already kind of have stress of the work and then aging and the kids. And as you know, that we're focusing on intimacy and it's really, really hard for people to keep the intimacy alive. So what are some, I know I said a lot, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts about secret recipe for that part. 
Well, I think you're actually, what you said was perfect already. It's interesting because a recent major survey in Australia found that the number one cause for divorce is inattention. So people don't feel they're getting enough attention. So I think that more than anything else, tying in with what you just said, is the number one way to fix relationships and to fix intimacy is that you have to give attention to your partner. You have to give attention to your relationships, make sure that you don't neglect each other. Or, or to put it this way about sex and intimacy, if you don't ever make the time to have sex, you'll never have great sex. I mean, that's pretty logical and obvious. So I think the major thing is when things start to fail, when things are going wrong, is to connect, to start investing, start giving. You need to sit together and say, hey, what's going wrong? How do we deal with this? What am I not giving you that you need? What do I need in this relationship? And it needs to be a very collaborative team effort. So one of the big things, one of my life rules is be the manager. It means you have to be the manager of all your own problems. So you never blame other people. You always take responsibility and say, hey, if I've got a problem in my life, I can't blame my partner. If, if she's unhappy, he's unhappy. That's my problem as well because we're a partnership. doesn't matter whether it's whose fault it is. We need to sit together and solve that as a team. Otherwise, we can't get the outcome. But I have a funny story about intimacy from a patient. And, you know, you can't make this kind of stuff up. It was, this is a really bizarre, uh, bizarre experience. It's actually in my book, but I think it sums up a, a, it'll, a, a funny point about intimacy. And I'll, I'll come back to intimacy after childbearing and, and in, in relationships. So I was seeing a, a couple and the man came to see me and he, he said, I think I've got low testosterone and I'm a hormone specialist. So I said, okay. So do you still have any desire for your wife? He said, yes. I said, well, how often are the two of you together? He said, never. I said, oh, okay. Why? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And the wife goes, well, we've got four kids, you know. How are we expected to be together? So I said to them, so the two of you never have sex or intimacy? And she said, no, of course not. We've got four kids. What do you expect? And then he turned to me and he said, well, when you're, if you were 42 and had four kids, you would understand. I actually was 42 and I had four kids. That was a really funny coincidence <laughs> at the time. So I, I just looked at them and I went, but you know, you can still be intimate and have sex even if you've got kids. Many people do. So he turns to me and he goes, do you think my friends are still doing this? I said, yeah, probably some of them at least, probably most of them. And they were absolutely amazed. So they turned to me and they went, but what about the kids? Now, I don't want to embarrass you by my genius because obviously you didn't go to medical school for all the years and train like I did, but I turned to them with this brilliant piece of advice. I said, have you thought of putting a lock on your door? So they looked at me and they were like, wow, what an amazing idea. I mean, what an amazing idea. Who, who comes up with such brilliance? I was like, I don't know where I get the stuff from, but it's just inspired. So, and then the wife goes, oh, but the children might know what we're doing. So I said to her, you know, at some stage of every child's life, they reach a point where they recognize that their parents must have had sex at some point or they wouldn't exist. And most kids actually deal with that quite well. It's a bit yuck to think about, but, you know, humans are actually designed to deal with that because it's part of the natural life process. Anyhow, so they went away with all this excitement and they came back to see me for follow-up. His testosterone levels were completely normal. And then they wanted to tell me all the details about how much they were enjoying each other. And I was like, yeah, there's only so much doctors need to know. I'm glad that you're happy, but I don't need to know all the details. And then I put a lock on my door in case they came back. 
which they have, unfortunately. <laughs> so I, I guess the answer to your question about int- intimacy after child having children and dealing with all the pressures of life is very simple. And that is that you have to keep giving attention to the things that are important in your life. And one of them is your marital relationship and intimacy. And many people use as an excuse the fact that they've got children to go, oh, we've got no time. We're so busy with children. You know, we're exhausted. And the answer is if your relationship fails or becomes strained, that has the worst effect on the children. The children rely on a parental management unit that works to get through life. And so it's worth investing, talking about things, putting aside special protected time for intimacy, for sexuality. Because if you start to get lose those things, you may never regain them and your relationship's going to suffer. So do it for the children. Oh, that's a great life. <laughs> I love it. And what a beautiful story and comment, right? I hear from when I give talks to parents that many newer moms that they say like, you know, I don't like it because like, what if our kids coming in or we have this policy of open door, all of these things that can get in the way of people get connected and remain erotically connected. And you're absolutely right. When I think about busy parents and the challenges of intimacy, it's multifaceted, right? One is that people are exhausted. Like you're working, you have your full-time work, and then you have like a child, and then you have to manage life, right? So it's hard to want to have sex because you're exhausted. And when you have it, like I know that sometimes people say like even having a date night on the calendar, it feels like a chore. I'd rather sleep. So that's part of it. On top of that, that people are feeling resentful. Like, you know, I've done this, you haven't done that enough. And there's just like, especially if the kids are younger, there's that issue. And on top of that, are people feeling like, like I know the how things unfold, especially I hear that from women that I, I'm bored in the bedroom, right? Like they, sometimes people come in and say like, my partner have my in a heterosexual relationship, my partner has low desire, maybe hormonal issues. But when I talk to women alone, they talk about, I just like, I don't like the sex that we're having, right? It's just like so uninspiring. So that's also part, another part that I hear from my clients. Yes, there's a a lot to unpick in that for sure. So, So the first thing is that I think one of the big problems with our generation, and this I cover in my second book, not so much in my first, I cover it a bit in the first, is that Parents, unfortunately, modern parents are actually incompetent and they are terrible managers. And my whole book is about the fact that parents have to take back management from their children. So the children run their lives, not the parents. And children are not good managers. They're emotional, they're immature, they don't have perspective, and they're all about what they want, what they need right now, and they scream and shout. And if you allow them to do that, you will be exhausted because they turn you into a slave. And slavery has been outlawed in the world because it's not enjoyable. It's very exhausting. So the first thing to say to that is that parents of our generation have lost control of their children and they should be making time for their marital relationship, but they don't because the children are controlling everything. And so the parents can't get away from the children because the children cry and scream and kick up a fuss if the parent leaves. And that's a management issue. So the first thing to say to that is you're not going to manage your house if you are not the manager. If you allow your children to manage you, then your sexuality is going to suffer, your intimacy is going to suffer, and everything's going to suffer. The next thing you were raising was about putting aside protected time for sexuality. And that again comes down to parental management. You put a lock on your door and you say to your children, when mommy and daddy's door is closed, 
You don't come and bother us unless it's an emergency. And then you make sure that they don't. I mean, I must say my wife was much more creative than me when it came to working out how to distract children. She always used to say to me, why can't you come up with anything? But I always used to get this blank in my head. I was like, well, I guess when you start talking about sex and my mind goes blank anywhere, there's only one thought on my mind. So to try and get me to think creatively about giving children to do isn't really going to happen at such a time. So I, I, I mean, I don't, and my wife always came up with some brilliant plan with what they were doing and they were reading books and playing Lego, whatever they were doing. And, you know, then parents could get away and do parenting things. And I think at some point, children just have to accept when mommy and daddy's doors closed, that's the time to leave them alone. And of course, there are times when children are asleep. So coming back to your next point, which I think is very funny, is what you're also describing is a very common, quite humorous interaction that happens between many husbands and wives. So contrary to popular belief, on average, the male libido is much more resilient than the female libido when it comes to exhaustion and sleep deprivation. So men have very high testosterone levels and they're very sexually driven on average. So men can, I mean, I could, you can leave me without sleep for like 10 days. And if I was reunited with my wife, the first thing I'd be thinking is, yay, you know? So whereas I think if my wife was sleep deprived for 10 days, the first thing she'd be thinking is get some rest, which is, which is quite normal and natural. So the common thing that happens to parents is that when they finally have some free time, the baby goes to sleep or there's like the husband's like, yeah, we can finally do it. And the wife's yet goes, yeah, get some sleep. I'm going to go have a rest. And the husband's like, what? What do you mean have a rest? Like, I'm like, and then she's already asleep. So it's too late. So that's a very common marital issue. So I think with all of these things, they come down to what you were saying earlier. As soon as people start to become resentful about what they are demanding, about being entitled, I deserve this. I should have this. This is what I want. That is already a relationship failure in a way because the relationship is about a team. It's about we are here to take care of each other, to love each other, to make each other happy. So my job is to make you happy. My job isn't to make me happy. But if both partners' job is to make the other partner happy, then if one partner is feeling sexually needy, within reason, the other partner cares about that and they want to make them happy. And so when both partners are so excited about making each other happy and have a different attitude, then you're going to both be taking care of whatever the other person needs and enjoying it. Because I think that that's one of the things that people fail to understand or that that's a bit, I don't mean that as a, as a condescending statement, but I think one of the things where, where, where relationships fail is the failure to grasp the fact that sex isn't just about the act. It's about loving each other. It's about being intimacy intimate together. It's about giving pleasure and receiving pleasure. But also, even if you're not so into receiving pleasure at any given moment, many people who love the other person like giving them pleasure because they love them. And so I think there's a two-way thing there that there's also sensitivity for both partners. You know, if a wife or husband really, really is in the mood for sex and their partner is absolutely exhausted and not feeling well, I think there are times where you should be sensitive about that and go, hey, this isn't the time. I'll just wait for another day. So I think it goes both ways. But I think the major thing is to have less focus on me, 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 and have more focus on the team, the partnership. Such an important point you brought up. Like sometimes people, when they think about sex, they think it's all hormones, right? Like drive is all hormones. But as you mentioned, it's like multifaceted. It's kind of motivation. So many different things can play into it. And 
I, we, these days we hear all of these hacks about kind of hormonal optimization, how you can kind of maintain hormones. First of all, tell us how, how important it is for our hormones to be at optimal place. Because I think sometimes people get very fixated on like, unless my testosterone level is like this, my free day is like this, or I cannot have sex. So that's part of it. And what can we do to optimize it? Okay, that's a brilliant question. And I think you're going to find my answer maybe a bit disappointing because as a hormone specialist, I'd actually say to you within reason, hormones are actually very unimportant in all of this. The fascinating thing about the world is that most people have normal hormones. So the normal range is there because most people sit in that normal range. And within the normal hormonal range, most human beings are very capable of having normal libido. Um, what is normal libido? Well, that's a very complex question as well because that's different for everyone. And I, I would rather see life in terms of function rather than in terms of normal. So functionality is is really the key to everything in life. Do you have a functional relationship that works sexually? It's not how often are you doing it. It's are both of you happy? That's it. Is the relationship functioning sexually? Are you both able to take care of each other in a way that satisfies both partners, doesn't put too much strain on one person. Because most partnerships are going to have mismatched libido. That's just the nature of life. No two people have exactly the same appetite for anything. So, except chocolate. Everyone wants lots of chocolate. So, that's just a joke. So, when it comes to hormones, men don't actually need very high testosterone to have a normal sex drive. And women actually, with manipulating female hormones, hasn't proven incredibly effective for producing libido in women who have low libido. So let me divide my answer into a few different things because your, your question's quite broad. The first is, yes, at the far end of the scale, if people have very abnormal hormones, that can certainly affect them. And there's lots and lots of different hormonal disorders in the world that can affect libido. Absolutely. And it's often worth having a medical assessment. That's true. So, so, so a lot of the men who come see me with really low libido do have low testosterone. It, it's, it's a big cause. But for most average people, libido is actually far more tied up in many other factors, in the quality of the relationship, in getting enough sleep, taking physical care of oneself. So alcohol and smoking and unhealthy lifestyle and obesity are all actually very bad for libido for all kinds of reasons. Stress is bad for libido. So there's all kinds of things. So if you take that as a more workable solution, there's no gimmicks required for sexuality. The one is, number one, make sure your relationship's healthy. You're talking about things, you're communicating. That's huge. I also think that staying physically close to each other is important, hugging, kissing, holding hands, being physically affectionate because it, sex is a physical language. And if you lose that language, then it's, you know, if you're constantly together, you're close, you're touching each other, it stimulates sexual desire in, in, in many people. The second aspect of that is boring things, really. Not all these, you know, tablets that you can buy over the internet for eight hundred dollars, and you see this, you know, muscular guy who's amazing, and women all clinging to him. The truth is that simple things work really well for most people, which is get enough sleep, try to find a way to deal with stress better in your life, eat a reasonably healthy diet, try and stay physically healthy, because in fact, people who are have developed their core strength, they actually work on core muscles. Women do pelvic floor exercises before and after childbirth, all these kinds of things. Actually, for, pelvic floor exercises are good for for sexual enjoyment, for orgasm, for and general physical health and fitness are really, really good for, for sexuality. 
But beyond that, and this is at the far end of the scale, it's interesting that low female libido after the age of 35 is the most common, if you want to call it sexual dysfunction, because I'm not really absolutely certain is a dysfunction. So in other words, is it normal or abnormal for many women over 35 to have low libido? Well, in many studies, 35 to 50% of women over 35 complain that they have little or no libido. That's, by the way, American studies, interestingly. So it seems that that is a very common issue for women. And who is to know what is normal? Because there are many reasons genetically and from an evolutionary point of view that may discourage women from actually being pregnant. If you think about, you know, not that long ago, a hundred years ago, being pregnant at age 35 or 40 is actually very, very dangerous for mother and baby. And so who knows what evolutionary drive there was towards that. So rather than saying, this is where the functional side of it comes in, rather than saying that it's abnormal for women to have a low libido after 35, which is, I'm not saying that it's normal or abnormal, it is common, I would say that it's really about functionality. Is that relationship working? Is there mismatched libido? The husband wants to have sex, the wife doesn't, or vice versa. Then the couple needs to work on that issue together and find ways to answer that. And the best way to do that, I, you know, lots of studies show is to try and restore intimacy, shared pleasure, spending intimate time together, even if the sexual act itself isn't that important to some people. The actual shared pleasure and intimacy is very, very important to relationships. So that's worth maintaining. And then, you know, if the sexual act isn't so important, but it's very important for the one partner, that's often a natural consequence of healthy intimacy. So really long answer to a short question, but I could actually talk about this a lot because it's, a, I mean, there's a broad medical discussion about hormones, but in many ways, people love to blame their hormones when really it's their lifestyle and their relationship that's the problem, not the hormones. I agree with you. And I think what's interesting is that I see a lot of women that are kind of like 35 and above and they're in the relationships. They don't want to have sex with the part long-term partner they have for a number of different reasons. One is that somehow they felt dismissed, like their partner invalidated them when they needed them. They didn't show up for them. I hear that like sometimes people come for sex therapy, but the issue is like when my mother had cancer, you didn't do this for me. So that's part of it. The other thing is I, this could be a general stereotype, but what I see is that for women, context is really matter. Like the script, the type of sexual experience that you have really increase the motivation. Like if you're interested in this context, increase the motivation. But for some of my uh, cisgender heterosexual male, it's more about what do I see, visual aspect of things, what's coming up. So I think like sometimes people don't come communicate that well. And it's very interesting in the part of my practice are conservative communities. As you can see, I'm Iranian-American. And uh, sometimes people bring their bring their quote-unquote air-quote partner to sex therapy, saying that my wife has low libido. But when we're talking to the, kind of I'm talking to the female partner alone, she said like he's lacking skill, right? Kind of going back to the education, right? There is certain level of skill that it's, this time and age, it's easy to attain through like courses, podcasts, all sorts of things. Going back to the concept of hormones, I hear at times, some studies said testosterone for women are helpful and there are studies that says it's not as impactful. How accurate is that? So that's a very controversial area of medical practice at the moment. But the truth is that studies on giving women with low libido testosterone treatment has very, very ordinary results. So a big study showed that women who went on testosterone supplementation 
had one more pleasurable sexual experience per month in one study, which, you know, is that, is that a huge thing? Was that, you know, who knows what, what the, it wasn't very meaningful. So there are, there are some women who seem to get some help from testosterone supplementation, but it's a very, very scanty evidence for it. Women are very complex compared to men sexually. And I think one of the saddest things that's happened in the world today is that I'm not politically correct, apologies. And there is this, it is actually quite simply nonsense. Men and women are not the same. And there is a great variance between men and women. And, you know, there's some men who might like wearing pink dresses and putting flowers in their hair. And they might identify as women or men or whatever they do. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, And it's not, there's nothing to say that accepting that there is an average male and female out there who have certain hormonal, physical, psychological profiles there's nothing in that that says we shouldn't tolerate people who are different. There are many people who are LBQTI plus. There's nothing, there's nothing to do with tolerance. We should tolerate everyone. Of course, we should take care of everyone. That's what a, what a caring society does. But nevertheless, men and women are actually designed to do different things. Women have babies. I know that's controversial, but they do. And they are hormonally set up for that. But not only that, all creatures in the universe are specifically designed to do the things that that species requires for survival. So it's not just the physical design. Women are actually designed to nurture and breastfeed babies and take care of young infants. And there is an enormous emotional design around that because otherwise we couldn't survive. And remember that there there was no bottle feeding and contraception, you know, 100 years ago, very, very little. So these things are very new to society and we've had to survive as a species without those things. Men, on the other hand, are the physical protectors of the species. So they are designed cognitive. That's why men are very unifocused because they're designed to hunt, to protect. And that requires focus. Kill or be killed in many circumstances. And you're not thinking about homework and which child is where. And so women actually have this amazing thing, which I don't call multitasking. It's something different where they have the sense of things in time and space that even when they're cooking, they can run a Zoom meeting talk to their husband on the phone, and they still know where each child is in the house and what time their ballet is. And this. Men don't do that. They get focused on something and that's their focus. So I think denying all of these things makes it difficult for many couples because they become resentful because they can't understand why their partner is different to them. But in tying in with all of that, there are there's incredibly solid, powerful scientific evidence that women are more emotionally connected than men. So they connect to emotion more deeply and readily than men do. It doesn't mean men are not human. We human, we have the same emotions. And when we talk about differences between men and women, we're 99% the same. We're all human. We all have needs. We need to be valued. We love, we care, and we could be great parents and great partners. It's not that we're not the same, but of course, the differences are what we pronounce because the sameness is is there. It, it's not interesting to say we're the same in many ways. You all breathe oxygen and we you know, there's many things that are similar about us and there's more that's similar than different. But at the same time, the differences are interesting. So there's studies that show that women emotionally connect more readily and more powerfully. And in fact, they even use their amygdala, which is one of the major centers of emotional memory. They use the opposite side of their amygdala to men. That's a proven fact, which is fascinating. Women do not compute emotional memory and connection the same way that men do. Physiologically, we do it slightly differently. So. Within that construct, women are much more emotionally connected when it comes to sex than men on average. 
which is why if you look at it in a practical measure to prove this to you, when men run around sleeping with girls as teenagers, they think that's awesome. But if they go and tell their friends, they break up with a girl they've had sex with or go tell their friends, it's often very hurtful to adolescent females because there is an emotional connection there with sex that is much more powerful. And that goes over into relationships, what you're describing, that in fact, men turn up naked, their wife takes off their clothes and they're like, yeah, awesome. For women, there's often a need for the emotional connection, for the relationship to be working, to be in the right mood, the right atmosphere, things to feel right for that woman. And if those things are not in place, then women often aren't that interested in sex. Whereas men, most men are interested, a lot of men are interested in sex a lot of the time. And there are men who have low libido, sure, but on average, men run around chasing women and, you know, it's become a big thing in Me Too and all these movements. The fact that men are always, you know, appropriately and inappropriately sexually advancing on women all the time is, you know. So I think what you're saying is absolutely valid. And we have to move away if we want this to be successful from the me, 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 I, I want sex, I want this, a woman, I don't want sex, man, I don't want sex. It's more about, hey, what does the partnership require? How do we make our partner happy? How do we deal with that? And part of that would be if a woman is finding that her male partner is not able to satisfy her sexually, well, that's a big problem. And unfortunately, as awkward as it may be, that requires some form of communication and education because otherwise, and they both lose out because if the man wants sex and the woman's not interested because he's not giving her what she needs, he's losing out as well. So it's in the interest of the couple for both partners to talk about that, to deal with that. Well, such a kind of like comprehensive information. And I, and I know that you have multiple books on all of these things. So for our listeners that are curious to learn more about you, all of these information that you put out there, what are some of the places that they can access those information? Well, the first is my book, Women Are Superior to Men. And, and the title is a bit tongue in cheek. I mean, some people get very offended by it. They think that I'm part of the woke movement saying that, you know, men are bad. I'm very opposed to that. By the way, I do a lot of podcasts and reels about the fact that I'm very opposed to sexism against men. I, I think men and women are different. And we have, on the whole, in history, we've been very happy together. And it's actually something beautiful when men and women fall in love. And so I'm very pro men and women, very pro people being happy. And I'm very pro tolerating everyone. But I don't think that necessitates being negative about men. So that's not my point at all. But the book is really a humorous expl exploration of the kinds of things couples fight about and how to resolve them, the reasons why we are different and the ways in which the average couple is different. And if someone reads the book, they maybe thinks they, they don't relate to it and say, hey, we are not like that, but they can laugh at the fact that other people are like that. And I think that's one of the big things about the book. It, it's available on Amazon, by the way, in America and Barnes and Noble. So women are superior to men. One of the things about the book is I think we've all become way too serious. We don't laugh enough. Everything now, people want to take seriously and get angry. And the book's really more about, hey, it's actually fun. Men and women have a lot of fun together. We have for thousands of years. Falling in love is beautiful. And laughing about things and finding things entertaining and amusing is much better for us than being angry all the time. But within the book also, I talk about strategies to deal with conflict, strategies to deal with sexual issues. And there's a lot of humor about the kinds of fights that couples have and You know, so, so that's a good place to, to go. DrRickyAronson.com is my website and that's got more information as well. Uh, I've got a podcast series called Happy Healthy Ever After, which is all about heterosexual relationships and, and making them work, but also talking out against all this 
negativity around men and women because I don't believe that most gender stereotypes are negative. I think most gender stereotypes are biological and genetic. There are very good reasons for them, but it doesn't mean that you have to have assigned gender roles. There's a big difference between those two things. So men and women might be different, but that doesn't mean men shouldn't help at home, do the wash the dishes, take care of the children. All those things are whatever works for that couple is what they should be doing. And most modern wives nowadays want husbands to be partners, not to be, you know, another child. So that's a, you know, so that's, those are the, probably the best places to go to find what I do. And my major thing is to give a positive message to the public and say, Hey, actually, men are not bad. Women are, men and women are different. We have a lot of fun together. It's a beautiful thing falling in love and having children. It's something magical. It's something amazing. Now, how do we make those relationships work better? How do we understand each other better? Amazing. Well, I'm curious to learn more about your books and uh, listen to your podcast. Thank you so much for coming in this show. Uh, thank you for the insightful conversation and hopefully we'll have you back in the future. That's so kind. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. I've enjoyed your company. Thank you. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. And if you want to learn more about the topics we discussed in this episode, make sure you're checking out Dr. Aronson's book. Before saying goodbye, I wanted to remind you to make sure that you are claiming your free mini course on stress reduction. And I have something exciting dropping in our mailbox. So if you are part of our newsletter, you're going to get something exciting in the week of January 15th. So it would be a bonus. So you get an information about stress reduction and also you will get posted about our surprise on January 15th. All right. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.